a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 2, Jack Kirby's 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Marvel Treasury Special, and issues 1 through 7. Hello, I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and welcome to the Comic Book Time Machine, comicbooktimemachine.com, a podcast when we go back in time to read comics, and this particular series of episodes is to chronicle my obsessive and completionist journey through time to read the comic books Marvel licensed during the period of time they were publishing Star Wars. Okay, I'm a comic book writer, and I've been reading comic books ever since I can remember reading. But I have to make a confession. I am really, other than, you know, his classic work on Fantastic Four and some other things like that, I'm not very familiar with Jack Kirby. I know he's a legend. I know he's a master. And I recognize him for that. And I love what I have seen of his work. But the truth is, I'm I'm just not familiar with a large part of his body of work. And um, I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. And I can fully recognize and appreciate that he deserves his status as a legendary comic book artist, as a master of the comic book art form. He just, he draws with energy and he draws with power and he is dynamic and imaginative. And so even though I haven't read his fourth world books or books like Commandy and some of the, some of these books that he just, you know, really proved himself with as, as a master uh, I haven't read all of all that stuff. I'm familiar with them because he's a legend in my industry and I have books, lots of books that will have Kirby influence. And I have lots of friends who definitely have a Kirby influence to their art. So anyway, he draws with energy and power and dynamism. So if you're going to adapt a quiet and cold and thoughtful sci-fi movie, yeah, Kirby's your man, right? I mean, that's the guy you think of first is to go to this guy who is big and bold and dynamic. So let's talk about 2001, the movie itself. 2001, it's cold. It's a cold movie. Kubrick is a cold director. There's a sense of detachment in a lot of ways. Now, there's some warmth to some of the characters, but... Um, especially 2001, where it's the coldness of space. And, well, you can't detach from humanity more than to stick someone in a spacesuit in a spaceship um, in the middle of the cold vacuum of space, right? There's very little dialogue in 2001. Less than half of the movie has any words in it. It's naturalistic. It's humanistic, sort of. It's, It's big. It's visual. It's subtle. It's vague. And it's thought provoking. I mean, the essential 
plot is we are watching the dawn of time and the dawn of humanity, the monolith, the great big giant rectangle slab is there to witness or to jumpstart, depending on your interpretation of the movie, epochs in human development. And so they, there is a monolith with the prehistoric man apes. And when one touches the monolith later on, he ends up using a tool to kill and that changes everything. Then humans find a monolith on the moon. And finally, there's a monolith out at Jupiter. And so popular interpretation of the movie kind of goes along with, with interpretations of the books. But what you have is that the monolith is there possibly to monitor humanity or, as I said, to jumpstart and to push humanity into a new stage of development. And the monolith is there as witness to these bookends of humanity. Tools at the beginning of human civilization, and then spaceships, the ultimate tool at the at, in the year 2001, and then transcendence beyond humanity into a new form of, well, the next stage of development for, of development for humanity, which in this case is Dave, the main character, becoming the star child, the space baby. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you've seen pictures of the monolith and the space baby, I'm sure. So our main character, Dave, he's about to die and then is transformed into the space baby because of the monolith being there. So he enters it. There's this crazy, weird, funky time star warp that he kind of goes through. And on the other end, um, he comes out as, as what they call a star child. The, the movie itself is long. It's quiet. It's boring to some. It's sterile. It's cold. It's all about style. It's all about this naturalistic style. The, the, the technology and the spaceships and the um, space travel and, and the way they would have gravity on their ships and that kind of thing. It's all done to be as scientifically accurate as they could uh, back in 1968, looking toward what would it be like to travel between the planets. The plot, there's not a lot to it, but it's also the plot of humanity and and the development of humanity. Um, this is a movie that you sit down and you are meant to experience. You are not necessarily meant to be transported on a plot line, on a narrative. It's a visual experience. You're meant to look and watch the visuals and let them carry you. Which brings us then to Kirby. Uh, I don't know why. I, I wish I knew why Kirby really uh, was drawn to do this uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. They did it in a treasury-sized edition, which means that they, um, the, the artwork is double-sized. Uh, it's probably actually reproduced closer to the size that Kirby actually drew it. Because in a comic book, they draw it at a larger size and they shrink it down for a normal comic page. And I, I just think it's magnificent. It's a magnificent book. I'm going to say that right from the front here. It's not a perfect adaptation of the movie. It's not even necessarily a good adaptation. We'll get to that in a moment. You know, this is, um, it, it follows the plot. It follows the basic basic story. Um, some of the art is actually drawn from screen uh, screenshots. In fact, some of the pages actually, some of the panels rather, actually even have uh, photos used in the panel itself with maybe some artwork drawn over it. And in some cases, just it's just a photo. For the record, I don't find that magnificent. Um, that feels a little bit lazy. But anyway, the story 
Um, it follows Moonwatcher, who has a club, which is a tool. He kills, and then he throws the tool up in the air. And as it's spinning in the air, you, you uh, it dissolves, and, and we, we now follow a spaceship that's following the same kind of trajectory. And the monolith is on the moon. It's on Jupiter. Then you have uh, the ship that goes to Jupiter. There, Hal is the computer on the ship. And this is another thing that even if you haven't seen the movie, you know about Hal and you know about, um, you know, you know, his voice, you know what he did, you know, some of his dialogue, even probably. Um, Dave has to kill Hal. Dave escapes. He escapes basically through the a monolith and dies in a comfortable and peaceful, if sterile, place and is transformed. He, he experiences transcendence. In 2001, ships flying through space, it looks like you would expect it to look. It's cold. It's dark. The, the ships do have lighting on them, but it's, it's meant to be naturalistic. Well, not so with Kirby. You know, there's Kirby Crackle all over the place. Kirby Crackle being just that energy that you see in space and in these places where it really shouldn't be okay. It's fantastic as far as just the. It's a fantasy. It's a space fantasy with the with the look, and it is wordy. Half of or more than half of two thousand one, the movie has no words, no dialogue. It's just grunts of apes, or it's natural sounds as someone is jogging, or just the camera passing over a spaceship. You know. Um, <laughs> and even the dialogue that is in there, it's really un almost somewhat unnatural. Some people say, I, I feel like it, it is natural and it feels weird because natural dialogue on film is not realistic. It's, 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 it's just, it just, it feels wrong. They say Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino, that he's a great writer of natural dialogue. No, he is a great writer of stylized dialogue that is styled to feel natural. But anyway, uh, the comic book, it is wordy. There are captions on every single panel. And uh, that's a, maybe a slight exaggeration. There might be a couple that don't have any, but they're made up for in other panels that have multiple. I mean, it just, it explains everything to you. It is completely unsubtle completely unsubtle the movie 2001 kubrick means it i, I believe kubrick means us uh, as viewers to watch it and to interpret and to experience and to you know think about it uh kirby doesn't does the thinking for you now to be fair arthur c clark uh, as he wrote the book 2001 which they kind of he was writing it as it was being filmed they developed the story somewhat together based on a short story Arthur C. Clarke wrote. But um, the novel, 2001, uh, to be completely fair to Kirby, the novel does do a lot of explaining too and doesn't leave too much to interpretation. But this comic adaptation could not be more unlike the movie. But it's also amazing. It is amazing to look at. It, and if you... Separate it from the movie. It is wonderful. Um, I mean, I, I I own it. I enjoy it. And it truly, it's a treasury edition, yes, because it is a true treasure of my comic book collection. I wish I discovered it earlier. And, you know, I, I watched 2001 as 
what they call sci-fi homework. Okay. Because you should watch it because it, it belongs up there in the pantheon of great sci-fi movies in my star log magazines. There were articles about 2001 and, and references to 2001 all over the place. And, I knew I was supposed to watch it. So I watched it because I was supposed to watch it when I was younger. As I grew older, I watched it because I enjoyed watching it and I still enjoy watching it. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea and I don't, you know, I, I don't judge anyone for that. Um, I just, I like it. So this treasury edition though, it, it strips out all the subtlety. It strips out the quietness. It strips out the realism <laughs> And so you are, it's basically, you know, what usually happens when you're taking a book and turning it into a movie. Usually you take the book and you have to add things to the movie to make it more energetic and more exciting and more interesting and more visual. And, and with this, it's the exact opposite. Um, more visual, more exciting, more interesting. But we're going from the moving screen image to the printed page. And the other thing we're moving to is not just to the printed page, but to serialized uh, storytelling. Um, this then, this Treasury Edition was a lead-in to a monthly comic book series. That's right, a monthly comic book series called 2001 A Space Odyssey. And who do you follow here? I mean, what do you do to tell a story from month to month uh, using this concept, 2001 A Space Odyssey? The characters... They're all dead except for Dave, who's a space baby floating in space. The other travelers in the spaceship, dead. Hal, the computer, self-aware but crazy and now dead. The answer to that is the monolith. Yeah, that's that's Kirby's answer. Let's take a look at 2001 A Space Odyssey number one. Now, this came out in December of 1976. I should say the uh, cover date was December 1976. Generally speaking, I'll be using cover dates as, as, a, as coding for the grouping together of books. But I will also bring up the, the release date, the actual release date. And the actual release date of this was September 1976. Now, this is eight years after 2001 The Movie came out. Although it did stay in theaters for four years after that, into 1972. So in 2001 A Space Odyssey number one, this is what Kirby gives us. There is a, a caveman called Beast Killer. He runs into a monolith, touches it, and then changes his hunting strategy to use a spear. He throws the spear, and we have another panel that mirrors the spear that he's throwing showing us a spaceman throwing junk in space and they have crash landed on a, an asteroid. There's a creature there. The spaceman escapes the creature that is chasing him by jumping into a monolith. He has crazy visions. He finds himself in a place of peace and comfort and nostalgia has rapid aging and a calm death and then transcends to become a star child. Now that place of comfort and nostalgia, I was reminded of a twilight zone or a, uh, a Ray Bradbury kind of story. Let's move to issue number two with cover cover date of January 1977. It's called Vera the She-Demon because nothing says sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey more than the She-Demon Barbarian Woman. So we have the She-Demon. She comes in contact with a monolith and she starts using a new tool to 
gain power over her fellow uh, cave people. And that tool is fear. And using fear, she finds security. Then we see her sitting there eating and we move to uh, another panel that mirrors her sitting there eating. And we're in space with a woman who is on a at an outpost investigating UFOs. She's chased by aliens. She escapes into a monolith and has crazy visions, find herself in a place of peace and comfort and nostalgia. For her, it's a 60s-era um, pool at a hotel, I think, something like that. Um, she experiences rapid aging, has a calm death, and then finally there's transcendence to star childness. Bringing us to issues three and four, February 77 and March 77, this is about Maroc. And I have to say, when you're just looking at the curviness of things here, these issues are amazing. 2001 A Space Odyssey Treasury Edition of the movie, the curviness is amazing. Issues one and two, the curviness is great. But we come back to Kirby amazingness with issues three and four. You have barbarians! And they're fighting and all this. Well, okay, so let me let me backtrack just a bit, though, to give you the bare bones of the plot here. Merrick is a barbarian, and he meets an inventor. They both come in contact with a monolith and have visions of also a woman who has been in contact with a monolith. And so the barbarian realizes bronze is going to be good to use to make weapons and tools. They create the wheel. They create armor, they create bronze clubs and bladed weapons, and he becomes a conqueror. Meanwhile, the woman who was in contact with the same monolith, a different one, I don't know, but she creates government and becomes a leader. Merak goes after her and conquers his way across the land to find this woman from his visions. When he finally finds her, he does not conquer their land because she has walls and they have... Uh, tar and pitch. Instead, they get married. So the monolith helped them develop government, the wheel, and the institution of family and marriage. So we go from an image of a wheel in one panel, and in the next panel, we have a picture of the round space station satellite, like you saw in the movie. Only this one, I believe, is around uh, going around Mars. Wherever it is, it's about to be assaulted by asteroids. And a man, whose name happens to be Merrick, just like the barbarian Merrick, although he has a, a decidedly uh, unbarbarian first name, his name is Herbert Merrick. Um, he in I just I imagine uh, Charlton Heston playing this part, but he stays on the station while his everyone else escapes. He's you know he's he's holding the fort to help everyone get away. The asteroids pelt into the space station. He escapes into the monolith. He has crazy visions and finds himself in a place of peace and comfort and nostalgia. And also a woman is there who looks like the woman from our earlier scenes. And instead of rapid aging, he slowly ages and he does not transcend. He does not become a star child. So we have a little bit of a plot twist there. Let's move to chapters or issues six and or five and six of April, May, 1977. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Now there's no prehistory here. It's actually the character's prehistory is that kind of early thing. <laughs> this is a character, his name is Norton, and he's in Comicsville where you live the comics. Comics have become completely interactive. You put on a costume, you actually are going through 
with actors on a stage and he Norton is dissatisfied with his life. He wants to escape regular life, which is why he's in that Comicsville thing. He actually comes across a monolith in Comicsville and also comes across a monolith um, when he goes to the beach, the beach being this completely, completely fake beach that they've created for him. He decides after um, meeting the monolith twice and touching the monolith to join the space program to escape the pollution and loneliness and dissatisfaction of life on Earth. In the space program, his friends make fun of him because he has comic book values. He's referring to comic books and stuff like that all the time. But they find a derelict ship and an alien woman, and she's a refugee. He knows she's a princess because, you know, he's into comic books and he knows these kind of things. He helps her and decides to be a hero, and he helps her escape on her derelict ship, and his buddies, you know, honor him as a hero. They are chased to her planet by the people who are trying to catch her and kill her. He knows they are because, as I said, he reads comic books, so he knows these things. Helps her into a transporter. She escapes, transporting away who knows where. He is killed almost, but he escapes into a monolith. Now, he has no crazy visions. That happened when the derelict ship went into hyperspace. But he does find himself in a place of peace, comfort, and nostalgia and transcends to star childness. His place of peace, comfort, and nostalgia, by the way, being a superhero story. And he is a superhero who rapidly ages and dies. And becomes a star child. Bringing us to issue seven, the last one we're going to talk about here. And this is the one that kind of breaks the mold. Now, all throughout, in letters pages, the editors have been making excuses for Kirby. For the storytelling here. People are complaining that it's not original they're complaining it's it's not pushing a story forward there are no recurring characters except for the two-part storylines and they're saying no you they're predicting the graphic novel and they're predicting the writing to the trade they're saying you need this is the thing that you need to just sit down and read all together getting it month by month you're not getting the full story jack kirby knows what he's doing in issue number seven, we get a story entitled The New Seed. Now, this opens on Gordon Pruitt, who's a space traveler who is about to die. But he's already in that place of peace, comfort, and nostalgia. He rapidly ages. He transcends to Star Child. And this time we see what happens after you become a Star Child. He goes and explores universes. He sees the evolution of worlds. He sees prehistoric uh, worlds. He goes and finds a world that is at the end of its uh, world war. He witnesses man's inhumanity to man. A woman is about to be raped. Another man interferes and saves her from the gang. The strongest weapon wins because that man, he is tough, but he's not tough enough for a whole gang, but he has grenades and uses the grenades. And unfortunately, he is shot from behind by one of the dying um gang members and then the woman basically everyone dies and the star child takes that woman and that man takes their essence to another world and plants them there for the cycle to begin anew it's nihilism and naturalism and kirby crackle all in one tight package now this is issue seven this is this issue that changes things and that totally um we we don't get the the same thing we, we get a new character but we get to see what happens when these characters become a star child. Now, <clears throat> I want to take you back to issue number one. And I said I, I wish I knew what Kirby, what made Kirby want to do this as his return to Marvel. 
And I think I have a little bit of the answer here, what the themes were that, that grabbed him. And I'm going to read to you from his uh, essay in the back of issue number one. In Monolith Mail, the letters page for 2001, he says, By and large, it is the creation of the new seed, which seems to be the basic consistent thread running throughout the now famous saga we call Space Odyssey. The new seed, in effect, emerges as the triumphant character at the climax of this magazine. It is the enigmatic little rascal for whom all the fuss and fury of the ages is first stirred up and then laid to rest in a final bow to the future, bow to the future. But who is the new seed? Or perhaps we should ask, what is the new seed? Is it man in transition? A testament to survival and continuance? Some fantastic proje projection of our ultimate destiny? Or is it the natural acceptance of what we expect to come after us? None of these speculations may be correct, especially in view of the imposing appearance of that alien counterpart, the monolith. That granite gremlin towers above these proceedings like an overpowering phantom, talking only to a chosen few when the destined time is at hand. It is the monolith which is the fly in our ointment when it comes to nailing down our opinions of the new seed. For it is, for if there is an alien power shaping the course of our evolution through the monolith, then it is doing so for purposes beyond our understanding. That power may well be injecting ingredients we're not aware of, changing a natural order to one of its own design. Still, the monolith is a fictional element in a very real process. I believe that it is this process which intrigues us, and it is this underlying thought which has made Space Odyssey an immortal product in the cinema, in literature, and now, all willing, in comics. Now that we're here, where are we going? That is the question posed by the monolith, and it is a question which has enthralled man since the beginning. Indeed, next to the more basic question of our individual identities, this larger puzzle will continue to tease us to the end of our days. And fortunately, it will remain a continuous boon to the workers of the editorial vineyards, us happy souls who make a living off our abilities to involve you in the fantasies so necessary in providing the proper balance to your everyday joust with reality. Yes, the new seed is the conquering hero in this latest Marvel drama. Why? Because he has staying power, that's why. He will always be there in the story's final moments to taunt us with the question we shall never answer. The little shaver is, perhaps, the embodiment of our own hopes in a world which daily makes us more than a bit uneasy about the future. Today, man is fouling the air. He is exterminating entire species of flora and fauna. The ocean's smell of foul odors and our disturbing rumor and there are disturbing rumors that we are destroying the life cycle of the very sea creatures which have provided us with the necessities for existence it can all start with very small things like plankton the lowest form of life in the pecking order eliminate plankton and a higher species dies out that causes the extinction of even higher life form and another and another until the whole chain disintegrates and leaves the oceans barren it could happen the world could go out with a whimper instead of a bang, and our every vision of the future could suddenly become highly academic. This is the point, however, where our cute little champion, the, the new seed, comes to the rescue. In the meager space devoted to his appearance, he brightens our hopes considerably. He is a comforting visual, almost tangible reminder that the future is not yet up for grabs, and wherever his journey takes him matters not one whit to this raider. The mere fact that the chances of his making it are still good in the com is the comforting thought. In short, the new seed is no more than the spirit of our own self-belief, our own confidence in the stubborn rationale which has brought us from the caves to condominiums in the suburbs. Somehow, at the very edge of group destruction, history gives evidence of persistent proclivity on the part of human beings for keeping mind and whatever else matters on an even keel. The new seed merely says we can still do it. 
We can keep the environment and ourselves running into the distant future. Future. We can someday knock off our hostilities and concentrate together on the great mystery of the stars. But until that day arrives, my advice to the reader is not to break the fantasy cycle. The excitement in store for you in Marvel's Space Odyssey will be heightened by an awesome array of characters that are guaranteed to freak out the faithful fan. And in the Vanguard will be the new seed. For it has been said of the converging cast, a little squirt shall lead them. Jack Kirby, 1970. <laughs> um, yes so <laughs> um i i just i look at that and i just think to myself you know this is exactly what he did and this is exactly what he's hoping you get out of it i enjoy these first seven issues now next issue we'll talk about in the in my next solo episode when i when i start with star wars number number one um but I, I just want to take a moment here and say, you know, they were talking about how this is the kind of thing. It's not meant to be read month by month. It's meant to be read all in one sitting and, you know, kind of looking forward to that graphic novel idea. And the truth is, I think it works that way. When you look at the from the Treasury edition to issue seven, you're looking at uh, the, the 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 creation of well, not the creation of the uh, the history of humanity from that first tool in the movie and in the treasury edition uh, on through the bronze age, the creation of the wheel and then up through 2001 where we have, you know, technology and, and technology as, as a tool uh, that, that is allowing us to go to the stars, which is allowing us to, you know, meet the monolith and that monolith, you know, that, that, that's something outside of humanity. That's why I say when I, it's a humanist story. Um, 2001 is kind of a humanist story because Yes, it's about the development of humanity, but there's this outside force that's coming in and reaching in and touching humanity and pushing humanity to the next step, to that next stage, to the Bronze Age, to create the wheel, to create tools, to go to space, to become a space baby, I guess, you know, being that ultimate point that they're, they're looking for. Uh, so you start with 2001 A Space Odyssey, that first tool, and then you go to the point where um, that final astronaut becomes um, a star child. And what does that star child do? He goes to a planet that is about to die, takes the two most noble uh, beings he can find, and he plants them on another world, starting that cycle over again, like I said. And it is issue treasury edition to number seven. It is best read together. These are chapters that belong. They're vignettes that belong in a single volume. Of course, they'll never be reprinted ever, but that's that's the way you should read them. And I do recommend, uh, if you can find it, reading the Treasury Edition up through issue seven of 2001 A Space Odyssey, because it does, it fits, it works. Um, you know, like, like I said, it's just it's just something else reaching in. You know, it reminds me of, you know, and this comes from my bias as a Christian, but, you know, of God reaching in um, and touching humanity and pushing us to become something better. That's what the monolith is doing more, you know, on an evolutionary grand scale. <clears throat> Although in, in most of these stories, it is a personal uh, story, too, of just being pushed to be something more and, and better. Uh, there's some letters to, about the 2001 movie adaptation, and I want to... Um, read three letters. They're very, 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 very short, but these three letters kind of express the, the, the three different viewpoints that kind of come in, in, uh, 
in the letters pages and that they kind of refer to. They say that it's about half and half of uh, mediocre people saying that it was just okay and people saying that they really, really loved it. Um, they're not defensive. They just simply lay it out. But here it is. Number uh, this is actually these are three letters from issue number six. First one, dear Jack, I really liked your Treasury adaptation of two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. But please stop your regular sized book before any damage is done. Jim Johnson. Next, dear Marvel, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey needs a skilled writer to make it work. After reading a few pages of Jack's sophomoric captions and dialogue, I gave up and just looked at the pictures with an occasional glance at the pr at the print. And Nichols. Finally, <laughs> uh, hey, bubs, Kirby is a genius, but the mentally and are, oh, sorry, Kirby is a genius, both mentally and artistically. There's nothing more I can say. Nick Aquila Jr. So there you have it. I mean, that's kind of that actually expresses myself <laughs> about this. Um, they said that the letters about the 2000 movie uh, adaptation were about half and half, mediocre versus masterpiece, and I would say yes. This is uh, 2001, a treasury adaptation, is a mediocre masterpiece. And it's very interesting because uh, 2001 kind of ushered in, along with Planet of the Apes, some new, uh, new um, visions in sci-fi movies. In fact, you could possibly even consider 2001 the movie itself as a, um, a monolith in the development of science fiction movies. I mean, that's, it came along and, and people who touched it or were touched by it, you know, they, they started telling stories in a slightly different way. And I, I think that, you know, that, that, that seismic shift in storytelling sci-fi storytelling, especially that happened around that time. Um, 2001 itself could be a monolith, uh, you know, touching filmmakers' brains and causing them to use different tools in different ways. Or maybe I'm just <laughs> really going way too far in my interpretation of it. Anyway, that leads us to our, our next section in our next episode, which is one of those new visions of sci-fi. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Logan's Run, Issues 1 through 6. 